you would turn to Luke chapter 20, I want to remind you, I know Andy mentioned this in announcements about the plus one prayer guide, there's some available to pick up, I really want to challenge you to pick up one of those and pray specifically for the things that are on that prayer guide, there are a few changes that have happened, Um, one of those changes is the unreached people group of the day, instead of listing that, we want to challenge you to download that app from Joshua Project called Unreached of the Day and pray for the unreached people groups every day. You can set that Joshua Project app to notify you every day of the unreached people group that you should pray for. And if you set it at 10.02, uh, Luke 10.2 says that we should pray for laborers to go into the harvest. So we can set that at 10.02 if that's a good time for you and be notified together. We're working on some ways that we can remind you as a, as a church family to pray for these things and to join together in prayer, and um, hopefully in the coming weeks we'll be able to do a better job of keeping you reminded throughout the week to pray for these things together. So download that Unreached People of the Day app and pray for our Unreached People groups. Pray for this plus one uh, along the lines of this plus one prayer guide together. We're in Luke chapter 20. We're closing in. We're going to pick up the pace in a couple of weeks when we get those last few chapters into the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, so we, we plan, Lord willing, to be done with Luke by the first Sunday in August. So uh, we're, we're, get, we're heading into the home stretch. And Jesus, we're going to see, is heading towards the cross at a high rate of speed here. Uh, we've seen him triumphantly enter Jerusalem. We've seen him cleanse the temple. Last week we heard him point at the Pharisees with a parable that even they understood the meaning of. And now today we see that the Jewish leaders have an unquenchable desire to destroy Jesus. And they send three different groups, or we see three different groups approach Jesus in an effort to trap him in our text today in Luke chapter 20. Let's look at those three groups together. We're going to begin in verse 20 with a group of spies. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse number 20, we see some spies come to Jesus in an effort to trap him, in an effort to cause him to stumble. It says in verse 20 that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Now, this is interesting that the Jewish religious leaders are kind of standing back. They've got themselves at a distance, and they find themselves some spies to go in and try to trap Jesus. And these spies are not religious. They just pretend to be religious at the beck and call of the Jewish religious leaders. In verse 21, it says, They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. This is how every meeting with the pastor begins when somebody has a criticism. They come in, they say, Man, you, you do such a great job. We really appreciate you. We really love you. And you're waiting on that three-letter word, right? But, and they do this to Jesus. They come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. Jesus, we know that you're not partial to any. Jesus, we know that you teach the way of God and truth. So they're trying to butter him up a little. They're trying to flatter him, get him to drop his guard, get him to relax. They're clearly not religious because they hadn't read Psalm 12 and verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, and he is about to cut them off. 
Verse 22, they say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Every good Jew despised Caesar. Every good Jew despised Rome. And every good Jew, like every good person, despises taxes, right? So they say, Jesus, is it okay for us Jewish people under the rule and the reign of Yahweh God to pay taxes to pagan Caesar? If we can just get Jesus to rebel against Rome, we'll have him right where we want him. That was actually one of their very first accusations against Jesus. We fast forward to Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. When they bring Jesus before Pilate, they actually accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, is that what Jesus does here? Well, let's just see. Verse 23, he detected their trickery. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Totally shut down their response. He He cut the lips of the flatterers off before they knew what was happening. And in verse 26, the obvious is stated, they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. There's coming a day when every mouth will be silenced, the Bible tells us. It's apparently not today with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all those things. But there's coming a day when every mouth will be silenced. And he has silenced his opponents. He has silenced the spies sent by the Jewish religious leaders. And this encounter with Jesus here would be good for us to just pause and understand in our own cultural climate. He says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. What is our government's inscription on? Our government's inscription is on our money, right? Just like the Jewish, the, in the Jewish day, Caesar's image is on the denarius. Our government's image is on money. Our government's image is on our property. Listen, you can do Dave Ramsey all you want and pay your house off in full, but the government gets the final word because if you don't pay your property taxes, who gets your house? We just think we own our house. Uncle Sam owns our house. Just try not paying your property taxes for about three or four years. You'll find out who owns it as the government comes in to evict you. The government owns our cars. If you don't buy that tag every year, if you don't pay the government every year for that tag and put it on the back of your vehicle, what happens? You don't get to drive. And the simple thing is the government's inscription is on the temporal The government's inscription is on the earthly. It's on the perishing. And if we see this, it should move us to care a lot less about the stuff that we invest all of our time and energy to gain that the government still owns anyway. God's likeness and inscription, however, is on what? It's on us. It's on us. We have been made in the image of God. We have been purchased with a price 
by Jesus Christ who gave His life for us on the cross. Render to the government what's theirs. Pay your taxes. Pay your property taxes. Buy your tag. Hold it all loosely. But give God all of you. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul said, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that which God's inscription is on. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God gets 100% of our worship and our loyalty. You may have heard of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada. We've got some friends who live there who periodically keep us posted on things. But Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada had their building fenced off by the government of Alberta. In essence, the Canadian government stole their church building in the name of COVID-19. Some protesters show up. They're unaffiliated with the church. They tear the fence down. Obviously, that gets blamed on the church really quickly. But you know what the church people did? The church people came out and put the fence back up. They put the fence back up and rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's. You can have our land. You can have our buildings. You can have our property. But they did not stop worshiping God. And they gathered every single Sunday, hundreds of them, in undisclosed locations, and are still worshiping Him today. So I looked up, if I looked up some information on this, one of the first articles that popped up was Canada. Canada shuts down Grace Life Church. And I thought, how absolutely ignorant when the Philistines report on what's happened in Israel. They didn't shut down Grace Life Church. They just moved locations. And this is a lesson for us on July the 4th. This was not planned. We've been in Luke a long time. And by the sovereignty of God who wrote Luke, we happen to land on render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's today. I'm not that, I'm smart, but I ain't that smart. This is a lesson for us to learn on Independence Day of all days. Not to let our loyalties as Christians mutate. Our God and our government. Our God and our country. Please listen. Please listen. Because what happens when our country becomes anti-our God? As it is now. And and as it is continuing to increase. We must be careful not to let our God our loyalty to our God and our patriotism of our country mutate because what happens when our country becomes anti-our God is we get put into a place where we are tempted to form a crossbreed of Christianity which is not Christianity at all. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, yes. Be a loyal citizen. 
Be thankful for your country. Be thankful that we can still gather and worship. Be thankful that we live in one of the wealthiest places, most comfortable places on planet earth. But render to God what is God's. And that is 100% loyalty and worship. And if there comes a day, as there is rapidly coming a day, where we have to choose between God and country, may it be said of us that we are citizens of another land. And we are just pilgrims passing through. Second group of people. The Sadducees. This, this was the joke. This is the most horrible Baptist joke I've ever heard. But I'm going to tell it, just so you can sympathize with me. I heard this one growing up. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and in the supernatural and in angels. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and supernatural angels, and that's why they were sad, you see. Is that not the corniest thing you've ever heard? But it'll pay off dividends here in a moment as we look at verse 27. As the Sadducees approach Jesus, that's why I don't tell jokes in the pulpit. Verse 27, there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And if they questioned him, and, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. You want to talk about putting high stakes on making sure your siblings marry good women. I mean, if you've got to marry your brother's wife, if he, if he checks out before she has kids, you want to make sure she's a good one, right? This just becomes a family affair. You're not marrying her, Bill. I'm telling you what, you, if you do and you die. <laughs> so there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second. And the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Somebody needs to investigate this woman, right? <laughs> Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven have married her. I mean, these Sadducees, they're... Bless them. They think they're going to trick Jesus. So, Jesus, if the resurrection is really real, who's, who's this woman going to be married to in the resurrection? She's going to have seven husbands? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spiritual beings. And they give Jesus a hypothetical situation about the resurrection, thinking they're going to trip him up over the issue of the resurrection. And Jesus just decides to push both of those Sadducees' buttons. He's getting close to the cross. He's quit caring. I'm just going to push that button, and I'm going to push that button. Let's start with the resurrection one. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, The, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's button number one. Jesus assumes there's a resurrection. He doesn't argue over it. He just looks at them like, there's one. But then he goes further and he says, let's push button number two. Verse 36, they cannot even die anymore because they are like <clears throat> angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. There it is, angels. Not only does Jesus make clear to them that the resurrection is true, but also that angels do exist. And they are just infuriated, I'm sure. Because he just doesn't even play their game. He doesn't take their bait. He doesn't, he doesn't go down their trail. 
He goes on in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. The Moses you just quoted. In the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. Here's those Pharisees. That's right. Amen. He said something I like. You've spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. The resurrection of the dead. How often do we talk about the resurrection of the dead? Funerals, right? How often do we talk about Jesus' resurrection? Every Sunday. And that's good. We should sing about Jesus' resurrection. We should talk about Jesus' resurrection. We should preach about Jesus' resurrection. We should be thankful for Jesus' resurrection because it's in Jesus' resurrection that we have been bought, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been born again. But how often do we talk about the future resurrection at funerals? In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27... The same exact encounter is put before us. In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, Jesus is approached by the Sadducees. The Sadducees come. They ask him the same question. Jesus gives the same answer. Everything is the same except for one statement. At the very end of the passage, in verse number 27, Jesus ends the dialogue in Mark 12 by saying this. Listen carefully as he speaks to the Sadducees about the future resurrection, he says, you have made a serious error. You deny the future resurrection of the dead. And you have made a serious error. This isn't just a misunderstanding that the Sadducees had. This isn't a gray area that we can agree to disagree on. This is not even just an error. This is a serious error. Missing the truth of the future resurrection is a serious error. And these Sadducees, we look at them and we just shake our heads. But I want you to just stop and put on your thinking cap with me for just a moment. Because when we live our lives in a way that says, I'm consumed with temporal things. I am consumed with earthly life. Instead of consumed with eternal things and heavenly life, what we are saying is we don't really believe in the future resurrection either. I mean, we give lip service to it. You know, it's a talking point. But when we live our lives consumed with the earthly rather than the eternal, what we say is we don't really, really believe in the future resurrection. Listen to this. When we focus our entire Christian life on the past resurrection of Jesus, which is all, it's very, it's obviously crucially important. But when we focus our entire Christian life on the past resurrection of Jesus without orienting our present life to the future resurrection of the dead, do you see that? If the past resurrection of Jesus doesn't orient our present lives to the future resurrection of the dead, we're saying we don't really believe 
in a future resurrection. If we look at our lives, do they testify to our belief in a future resurrection? If we look at your daily life, your bank account, your spending, your possessions, your career, your trajectory, your goals, your passions, do they testify to a belief in the future resurrection? Paul's did. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's giving us his big discourse on the future resurrection. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we have hoped that this in this life only, if this is it, if this is all there is, we should be pitied more than any man on planet earth. John Piper writes this about that verse. What Paul is saying here is that the life Paul has chosen to live based on his deep, confident hope for his own resurrection. The life Paul's chosen to live based on his deep and confident hope for his own resurrection would be a pitiable, foolish life if in fact there is no resurrection. If the dead are not raised, if this life of risk and sacrifice is my only life, I am a fool, a pitiable fool. The opposite viewpoint of the resurrection is also seen in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is alternative to a life focused on the future resurrection and the hope of eternity. A life that is focused on the temporal. A life that is focused on the earthly. A life that is focused on eating and drinking and living your best life now. And we make fun of Joel's book. Somebody else buys one of those at a rummage sale and gives it to me. I'm, I'm going to stop laughing about it. Yes, this has happened. Thank God they're just buying them at a rummage sale, not buying them off Amazon. We laugh at Joel's book, but let's be real. How many of us are living that way? We come and say, oh, that's wrong thinking. We shouldn't read that. We shouldn't believe that. We shouldn't be seeking to live our best life now because our best life is yet to come. But how many of us are living that way? It's easy to talk negatively about a book title. It's harder to live negatively about a book title. Without the conviction and the hope of a future resurrection, we will inevitably treat this life as our primary source of pleasure. More literally, we'll treat this life as one big playground. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to make as much money as I can make. I'm going to spend it on all the toys I can spend it on. May as well spend it now while I got it. I'm going I'm to have as much fun as I can have. I'm going to store up as much retirement as I can store up. And I'm going to retire as early as I can retire so that I can travel the world and have a good old time. Because when I die, I mean, it's over. Oh no, we'll have a funeral and we'll read 1 Corinthians 15 then. We're all hoping for a future resurrection. No, no. Bill came to church. If you're named Bill, I'm not picking on you. That's just the name that comes to mind. Bill came to church every Sunday. Bill walked the aisle. Bill prayed the prayer. Bill got baptized. 
Bill joined up. Bill gave his tithe. Bill came to Sunday school. Bill read his daily bread every morning. He watched a little David Jeremiah on TV. Bill was a good man. But Bill didn't live like there was a future resurrection. He was thankful for the past one. But he lived like everybody else pursuing the American dream. And now he's dead and we're all going to celebrate the fact that he's in heaven and he's going to be resurrected one day. He treated life like a big playground. And we never have a red flag. That's my job. I think that's my job. Throw the red flag. Nobody likes the referee. He's throwing the yellow flag, right? If he throws the yellow flag, everybody's mad at the referee. I'm just throwing the yellow flag, saying our Christianity is not biblical Christianity because we treat life like a playground rather than as a battleground. We live like this is our only life when we should be looking to the future. If we're to look at our lives today from outside and let our words, our social media posts, our wallets, our passions, our actions, our investments, our priorities give testimony, would they say that our focus is this life? Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Or would they, would they say that it's the life to come? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, let us be the most pitied. If we're living for this life, we are practical Sadducees and we can't make fun of them. We're practical Sadducees who don't really believe in a future resurrection. And in the words of Jesus, we have made a serious, serious error. The words of Walden Parker. It will not make much difference, friend, a hundred years from now. If you live in a stately mansion or in a river scow. If the clothes you wear are tailor-made or pieced together somehow. If you eat big steaks or beans and cake a hundred years from now. It won't matter your bank account or the make of car you drive. For the grave will claim all riches and fame and the things for which you strive. There's a deadline that we all must meet and no one will be late. It won't matter then all the places you've been. Each one will keep that date. We will only have an eternity what we gave away on earth. When we go to the grave, we can only save the things of eternal worth. What matters, friend, the earthly gain for which some men always bow. For your destiny will be sealed, you see. A hundred years from now. Third group that approaches Jesus are the scribes. In verse 41. He said to them, How is it that they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, Jesus has all of a sudden taken the reins. He's taken the conversation. He turns to the scribes who just said, Amen, hallelujah, right on Jesus. Tell them there's a resurrection. Tell them there's angels. Tell those Sadducees they're wrong. And he says, Guys, tell me something, you scribes. Tell me something that you guys that know the Bible. How is it 
that they say that Christ is David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 44, Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Nobody calls their son Lord, in other words. Especially King David. And while the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Look how bold he is in verse 46. Beware of the scribes. He's pointing at them right there. there. They just amend him. He's like, mistake. I see you there. Let me, let me give you a sermon. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour, what does it say? This is important for you to hang on to before we're done here. They devour what? Widows, houses. And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These are going to receive greater condemnation. These are the biblical scholars of the day. They should know the answer to this question. Everyone knew that Christ, the Messiah, would be David's offspring, David's son. There's no question. Then Jesus quotes for them Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh, David says, Yahweh says to my Messiah, my Lord, sit at my feet. How on earth does David call his son Lord? And they're all going, I, I, you lost us. So Jesus just goes ahead and calls a spade a spade and says, These men, they like the fancy robes. They like, they like the cufflinks, the designer clothes. Fancy vehicles, the platforms. They feign humility, but they really like signing those books and selling those books. You better look out for them. They devour widows' houses. You want to talk about a bad example after bad example after bad example. We've got some spies sent by the Jewish religious leaders. We've got some Sadducees. We've got some scribes. We've got bad example after bad example after bad, after bad example. Do we want a good example? Well, keep reading. You see, we've got a chapter break there, but the story goes on. And we see a good example here in verses 1 through 4. An example of surrender. And look at what it says. In 21, verse 1, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a what? Poor, what is it? You can talk back, it's okay. Widow. Now, now what did he just say about the scribes? Who did they devour? They devour, they devour widows' houses. And now he turns and he looks up and he sees rich people parading themselves through the temple treasury. And you know, they didn't put their, they didn't put their check in an envelope. <clears throat> They put it in there where everybody can see it. Look at that. But we're keeping this temple afloat. And then this poor widow puts in two small copper coins. In, or, in other words, nothing. She puts in nothing. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Jesus has already told us how much he cares about a denarius. Give it to Caesar. 
I don't care. It's got Caesar's inscription on it. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. He doesn't care about their money. The rich people can fill the plate up. This widow has given more than every one of them. For they all, verse 4, out of their surplus, out of their surplus, out of their extra, out of their leftover, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all. All? Does Jesus exaggerate? Does Jesus lie? He said she put in all that she had to live on. The widow is the summary here. We've got the spies and the religious leaders. We've got the Sadducees. We've got the scribes. But here's this unseen, uncared for widow that is being devoured by the Jews who say, put the money in the plate. Put the money in the plate. And Jesus says, she's rendered everything, her very self, to God in worship. Is the temple a worthy cause? Absolutely not. As we're going to see next week, it's about to be cut down in just a few decades. Are these Jewish leaders worthy men? Absolutely not. He's made that known one, two, three times in the very passage we've read this morning. But she's not giving to them. She's giving to the Lord. And he is watching her right there. Nobody else saw her, but Jesus saw her. And those Jews will answer for their abuse of her offering, as small as it was. But she will answer for the heart behind her offering. If there's anybody in this passage that's looking to a future resurrection, as she, in her poverty, releases her grip on everything she has, her earthly security, as she releases her grip in, er, on her earthly security and faith towards God, she gives 100% to God. She gives 100% to her Lord, to David's Lord. And here is the essence of Christianity that I've tried to preach every single week. Christianity is not saying the right Things, praying the right prayer, doing the right stuff. Christianity is total, 100% surrender to Almighty God. She surrendered everything. She surrendered it all. She's surrendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's. She pays her taxes and she is giving to the Lord her all. She's living her life for the future resurrection. She's living her life in reliance upon David's Lord. And she is releasing her grip on everything. She surrendered all. Even though it was less than the others, it was her all. Which amounted to so much more than the others, he released their grip on a larger amount. Please listen to this. Listen carefully. The size of what you release does not give evidence of surrender. You may be the fattest check writer in the room. Not physically fat, but the check. Let me rephrase that. You may write the fattest checks in the room. Now you can retract that email, whoever you are. You may write the fattest checks in the room. But the size of what you release does not give evidence of surrender. The size of what's left in your hand after you give gives evidence of surrender. And I'm not talking about just money. Please don't hear, well, we ended that one with a preacher begging for money. We're not talking about money. 
We're talking about your life. The size of what you render doesn't mean surrender. What's left after you open your hand shows surrender. She opened her hand and released her grip on everything she had. She surrendered all. What is the song that we sing? All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy Thine. Let me feel Thy Holy Spirit. Truly know that Thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And in the words of A.W. Tozer, Christians don't tell lies. We just sing them. But here is the essence of biblical Christianity. Releasing our grip. You know what's very frustrating? This is a side note free of charge. You know what's more frustrating than finally releasing your grip and surrendering? It's when you finally release your grip and surrender all. And Jesus says, no, I'll just leave that in your hand. Wait a minute. I have already emotionally, mentally, and spiritually parted company with this, and I'm surrendering it to you, and Jesus says, I'll just leave it in your hand. How are you going to deal with it now? That's frustrating. But the moment we start closing our grip again is the moment we stop looking as much like a Christian and more like just a normal old Joe. I surrender all. That should be the sinner's prayer. Mean it from your heart of hearts. Say it sincerely. Mean it from the deep depths of who you are. I surrender all. And if you can't pray that prayer, you're not a Christian. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he surrendered all. He left his heavenly throne, the right hand of the Father. Did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped or to be held onto, but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a human and he lived a sinless, spotless, perfect life and then surrendered himself to an unjust, undeserved death so that God the Father could pour out your sin and my sin on Jesus on the cross and judge it there instead of in us. And he gave up his spirit and he was buried in a barred tomb. And thank God the Father that he raised him from the dead on Sunday morning so that we can come to him and not say, how much can you give me, Jesus? What can you do for me, Jesus? How can you bless me, Jesus? But we can say, Jesus, I'm all yours. Can you say that this morning? That's our hope. That's our prayer. We're going to pray and we're going to sing. And as we sing... May we mean what we sing.
Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your gospel that we can have hope in a future resurrection, that we can give you our all and we can render to you what is yours. We thank you that you're Lord. You're David's Lord. You're our Lord. You're Lord of the living. And we thank you, God, that this little widow who is having her house devoured by those scribes trusted you and loved you enough that she was willing to release her grip on everything. Help us to open our hands. Help us to open our hands and release our grip on this world and live in reckless abandon for the world to come. Oh God, if there's a person here who can't say, I surrender it all, We pray that you would stir them, move them, convict them, and grant them repentance and grant them faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.